This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, go over some of the more fascinating points in the very, very long history of human beings and cannabis. Isn't that right, Bean? That is precisely what we do. I do not know the story we're about to hear today. Bean has researched and written it, and he's going to be telling it to me and telling it to you fresh We've got some weed rolled up. We've got some Tweedle Farms joints. I've got this iced tea here. I'm super excited. Bean, what do you got for us today? Today, I've got a story about one of the best known people to ever live on planet Earth. Whoa. Somebody who is very, very well known for his love of cannabis, Mm. but I think has a weed story well, certainly that a lot of people don't know, and we'll find out what you do or don't know about it as we go. Whoa, okay, one of the most famous people on earth. We've covered some pretty famous people on this show. We've covered Barack Obama. We've covered Bob Dylan, Louis Armstrong, pretty famous people, but it sounds like this one really, really takes the cake. I'm not gonna make any guesses yet, but I'm ready to rock. Uh, I've got some joints rolled up here for us. And if you're at home, you're not quite that caught up. You're looking at a big pile of buds and thinking to yourself, oh, I'm, not, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And, and that's fine, man. It's cool. Hit pause. Roll yourself up a joint. Pack yourself a bong. Split yourself a blunt. Dab yourself a dab. We'll be here waiting for you. And when you're ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. All righty. So a weed story about a very famous person who is famous for smoking weed. But this is a story that not necessarily everybody knows. Absolutely. And this is a story that I learned so much in the research of it. So, you know, we're all going to learn together about a very famous person with a not as famous weed story. Interesting. Okay, let's get some hints going. I'm excited. All right. Well, I'll give you one big hint. Okay. And this this might give it away. It might not. Mm-hmm. When you were saying, oh, we've done episodes about really famous people. You mentioned Bob Dylan. You mentioned Louis Armstrong. You didn't mention Jesus. Right. Oh, the most famous, perhaps. Perhaps. All uh, right. Uh, oh, I see. <laughs> Someone who is perhaps bigger than Jesus. <laughs> no! Well, let's leave it there for right now. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) I am certainly not weighing in on who's more famous. Uh No reason to start bonfires of Great Moments in Weed History podcasts. Yeah, no, there's been big beefs over this (laughs) throughout history. This is a very big beef, but we're going to bring this back right now to July 5th, 1971, when a very not friend of the podcast, Richard Nixon, actually did something cool against his own wishes. 
which was he formally certified the 26th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Do you know which one that is? 26th Amendment? Not off the top of my head. We are certifying the 26th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. That amendment, as you know, provides for the right to vote of all of our young people between 18 and 21. 11 million new voters as a result of this amendment that you now will see certified by the GSA administrator. Wow. It's crazy to think that at some point you had to be 21 to vote. I mean, I feel like an 18-year-old person has the cognitive skills, has the reasoning skills, and also is a member of society, can work, can drive a car, can have a job, can do all these things. I mean, it'd be nuts if someone who is 18 couldn't vote. But you've listed all these things you can do when you're 18, Mm -hmm. but what really brought about this change, not just to the law, but to the Constitution, Mm -hmm. was the fact that at the time, we're in 1971, you could also be drafted to go to Vietnam. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's sort of a sinister side reason for this law, for this amendment actually happening. Yeah, even even Richard Nixon had to sign this against his wishes because he was not very popular with the 18 to 21 voting block in 1971. Yeah. And so as he's looking forward to his potential reelection, mm. this is the last thing he wants to do. Yeah. And you know what? In this one, I'd say in the long run, Nixon won because even though people 18 to 21 have the right to vote, they consistently show the lowest voter turnout. As an American with the right to vote, right, having one 300 millionth of a say in who runs the most powerful country in the world is more power than any other individual anywhere in the world has at this point in time in the world we live in today. And the vast majority of people with that power, they don't exercise it at all. It's a fucking travesty. Yeah, and of course, people, you know, marched and sacrificed and died for the right to vote. And and particularly, you know, with this youth vote, it was only because of a horrific war that the age was even lowered. And now this plays into our story. I had to set that up because it plays a major role in our story as it unfolds. Okay. At the time... The hero of today's episode was living in New York City on a work visa while putting the finishing touches on his first proper solo album. Right. So, of course, we're talking about John Lennon. That's right. Legend from the Beatles. Yes, there's George Palisol, Ringo Stone, and Paul McCharmley. And he's right now creating music that's truly going to last forever. Yes, this is he's working on the album Imagine. Um, And he is also speaking out, and this is key, speaking out against the Vietnam War. At a time, you know, now speaking out against the government, speaking out against colonialism, speaking out against the war machine Mm -hmm. is difficult and can have consequences. But this was somebody who had all the fame in the world, all the adulation in the world, and was willing to put it on the line to say what was right, which was that this war was a disaster and he was willing to stand on the side of truth and justice against this war machine. Yeah, and a lot of people at the time felt this way but lacked a central figure to really 
lead the conversation in popular culture to say, yo, this war is fucked up. Yes. And so here we have John Lennon. He's he's uh, just a little bit out of being in the Beatles. He's living with Yoko Ono in New York. He's speaking out against the Vietnam War. And then he makes his first concert appearance in more than five years. Now, the, the Beatles were around, but they stopped touring. Mm-hmm. And he does it at a rally in support of John Sinclair. Oh, yeah, John Sinclair. I've actually met this guy. And what happened is he was a radical writer and an activist and an agitator. And at the time, in 1971, he was serving a really long and unjust prison sentence for cannabis. Right. And so John Sinclair's name has come up a lot when we talk about activism and advocacy of a lot of issues that I really agree with. But I got to say something that... I would like to keep in this episode because it's the truth for me. But when I met him, I was with the Kaminas, who are a Muslim punk band that I've played with and rolled with for a long time. And John Sinclair actually said a couple of very bigoted and kind of racist things towards my bandmates at the time. And it changed my opinion of the guy forever, frankly. You know what I mean? Seeing that he has done a lot of really positive things, that he has a history of activism. And I believe that Those ideals that he was standing up for were definitely very just. I still, on a personal level, lost a lot of respect for that guy on that day. I won't elaborate on exactly what he said, but I think anybody should know that he said bigoted things about Muslims to Muslim activists, to me and my friends. Oh, wow. Obviously, I had no no. idea of that. And it's all good. I think the story is still really important regardless of that, but it is something that I want to throw in there. So... Just to fill in the details, what had happened to John Sinclair was he was set up over the course of several months by a pair of undercover narcs who eventually they get him to pass two joints and he ends up with a prison sentence of 10 years. God damn, that's five years a joint and that is the definition of draconian. Yeah, even at a time where the laws were horrible in many places, you know, it was two things. It was how severe the sentence was for such a small amount of cannabis and also somebody who was clearly being targeted for their political views. Yeah. And this puts him on the radar of John Lennon, who at the time is really pushing back against the war and against a lot of unjust aspects of society. So he wrote a song about the injustice of getting 10 years for two joints, 10 for two, And he debuts this song at a stadium-sized, huge freedom rally about this case that also featured Stevie Wonder and sort of all these far-left figures like Allen Ginsberg, Jerry Rubin, and Bobby Seale, who was the uh, co-founder of the Black Panther Party. Right, of course. So everybody's coming out for this event to push back against this unjust prison sentence but it's also the first time John Lennon has played music in public, or at least a concert appearance, in five years. Wow. Oh, my God. So it's a scene. I mean, this is the guy from the biggest band in fucking human history at this point. That's a fucking scene. 
this shines a huge spotlight for younger people. I think even still younger people kind of get how big the Beatles were. I was not, you know, that's not our generation, but you just culturally understand these were the first people who were chased through the streets for being famous. They're, you know, beyond any sort of musical icon of now. One of the most famous people who ever lived maybe second to somebody else yeah, <laughs> to be determined. So what ends up happening is three days after the concert, John Sinclair walked out of prison, a completely free man. He had like eight years left on his 10-year prison sentence wow. prior to this. And beyond that, citing the, quote, cruel and unusual punishment that was given out in this case and many others, the Michigan Supreme Court went so far as to rule the state's laws against cannabis unconstitutional. Wow. Holy shit. So this was a very impactful campaign. And for John Lennon, this was really just the beginning. He really said, I, I'm going to take the responsibility. And John Lennon at this period of time really consciously saw what power he had been given through his music, through people's fandom, through the media, and, and said, you know what, I'm going to try to use it. And this is what he said to the crowd at this freedom rally. Uh, we came here not only to help John and to spotlight what's going on, but also to show and to say to all of you that uh, apathy isn't it and that we can do something. Okay, so flower power didn't work, so what? We start again. Wow. Okay, cool. So, I mean, look, at this time, maybe people have lost some faith in the hippie movement. You know, maybe it's like lost momentum or lost steam. But this is really a rallying of that mindset. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine what the what the election of somebody like Richard Nixon did to this youth movement mm -hmm. for change, for uh, fighting against injustice and for fighting against this war. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's saying, hey, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. But being apathetic about politics and about the world around you is not going to make it better. Yeah. So guess who didn't love the sound of that tune? Uh, Richard fucking Nixon. Tricky Dick did not love that. And this is all in the concept of now he's going to have to run for re-election for the first time with 18 to 21-year-olds having the vote. So these are the people that John Lennon speaks to the most. Wow. So he's like, oh, my God, why did I sign the 26th Amendment? <laughs> Absolutely. And who else doesn't like this new tune that John Lennon is singing are J. Edgar Hoover. So the head of the FBI, right? Yes. Going back to like the 30s just has been fucking with any kind of radical movements, any kind of progressive movements. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to see what some of his methods are in this podcast. But also another person who's not loving this new John Lennon vibe is Strom Thurmond. Oh, right. Of course. So Strom Thurmond being the segregationist, very, very long-serving senator who in the 90s partnered with none other than Joe Biden to create a bunch of horrendous federal drug measures like mandatory minimums, which imprisoned millions of black and brown people for nonviolent crimes and resulted in the United States having 
the largest prison population in human history. So what Strom Thurmond at the time, he was a senator and he hears about this concert and he drafts a memo detailing John Lennon's recent embrace of revolutionary subversion and warning that the singer had a plan with members of the Chicago 7 to, quote, hold rock concerts in various primary election states and recruit protesters to come to the Republican National Convention. Mm -hmm. So Strom Thurmond's memo, very, very cuttingly, concluded with a suggestion that if, quote, John Lennon's visa is terminated, it would be a strategic countermeasure. Wow. So they actually want to kick this world-famous artist out of the country entirely just to try to stem some of the momentum of this movement. I mean, it's written down in black and white. You know, we don't have to try to figure out what their motives are here. So within days of this memo, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, the INS, Mm -hmm. revoked John and Yoko's visa status and began immediate deportation proceeding. Right, and the INS, of course, evolved into ICE, or ICE, which is the current government department. And uh, the the heirs to the Gestapo uh, legacy in this country. And, yeah. you know, what's going on right now with ICE is is, is a national shame and yeah. and one that will long outlive this moment in history. Yeah, absolutely. Putting children in cages is not going to be forgotten quickly. No. And so John and Yoko get this letter and and it just says deportation immediate and I guess a callback number. I, I don't know how it worked. <laughs> I don't know how it worked in the 70s. Uh, <laughs> but this shit is real. It doesn't say, of course, we're doing this because you played at this concert or you're speaking out against the war or you're encouraging young people to vote. It just says you're getting kicked out. And so he hires this very legendary immigration attorney named Leon Wilds. And he later wrote a book about this whole uh, episode in history called John Lennon versus the USA, which was also the name of this case Ah. as it entered the court. Uh, Wow, epic name. Yeah, and I just want to say I relied pretty heavily on this book in researching the episode. Gotcha. And in the book, Wilds, the lawyer, explains why John Lennon's immigration status was always so precarious. Hmm. And he says, Obtaining John's visa always involved a hassle because of a 1968 British conviction for, quote, criminally possessing cannabis resin without authorization, which had uh, rendered him inadmissible in any visa category. So he always had to apply for a waiver. Oh, so he had this thing on his record that always fucked with his process of getting immigration in order to stay here. Yeah, and it was a real, you know, being John Lennon, he was, you know, both had resources to deal with this and also people really wanted him to come. So he was able to get special waivers, but it was very difficult for him to even get into the United States and get a visa to start with. And in in the lawyer's words, now John and Yoko's visas were set to expire and they were more than concerned that a further extension would never be granted. Ah, okay. So basically it was stopping the process of them renewing their visa that they'd been riding on for a while. Yeah, so the letter says, your visa is up on this date, you're going to be deported 
the next day. So at the time, they were actually in the middle of a protracted custody battle over Yoko Ono's daughter from a previous marriage. And that's part of why they were in the United States. Ah. Uh, Yoko's daughter is not allowed to visit us because uh, her ex-husband won't let let her see him, let her see her own daughter. All Yoko wishes is that now and again, Kyoko could be brought to that house to spend some time with her mother. They'd won two previous court cases granting her custody mm-hmm. of the child, but each time the father basically kidnapped the kid and, and ran away. Oh, my God. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. This was a long period in their lives, years that they spent tracking this person down who was in hiding, who was living in, like, off-the-grid communities and, and ashrams around the world. Uh, even with all the resources at their disposal— They'd been chasing this person for years and hadn't even seen uh, her daughter. And so Yoko's big fear and John's that he shares with her is that if they're deported from the United States permanently, then they'll never see her daughter again. Oh, my God. So there's a lot more riding on this than just them being able to stay in the U.S. and lead this movement. Yeah, absolutely. And then meanwhile... The official reason given for this deportation is this three-year-old hashish arrest. But this explanation really makes no sense, as the attorney pointed out. Mm -hmm. He said, to allow John entry to the United States, the government had already waived his drug conviction. But now suddenly the government is shocked to discover that he had this conviction and they have to kick him out of the country forthwith. You know? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense unless you know what they're really doing. Yeah, they're using it as an instrument to get him out of there because he's a thorn in their side. Yeah, and so, you know, what's kind of interesting in this story is the the immigration lawyer that he hires is sort of a straight-laced mainstream person who, on the one hand, has, you know, been fighting for the rights of immigrants against the government— but doesn't have a sort of inkling of how dark the government can be Mm -hmm. walking into this. He thinks it's going to be a paperwork case. You know, he's going to find the right person within the system, explain what's going on, say, look, you know, this is John Lennon, first of all. Second of all, this is a mother trying to reunite with her child. He thinks it's all going to be fine. But when he starts to dig in, This is what he realizes, and I'll read it in his words. What I discovered shook me to my core. Our Constitution commits vast power to the president, but it also attempts to curb this power with a system of checks and balances. Occasionally, however, an administration will circumvent these limits on its power and actually use the agencies of government as instruments to punish its political opponents. Right, and so he's, I mean... He's kind of hitting it right on the head. You know what I mean? That's obviously what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, now everything we know about Nixon, Watergate, his his plumbers and his dirty tricks, you know. But at the time, this really wasn't known. Watergate hasn't happened yet. Mm. The break-in hasn't happened yet. Right. Uh, Never mind its discovery. So he's really shocked as he starts to pursue this case on John Lennon's behalf. And, right. you know, the idea of a presidential administration punishing its political opponents and and using the Constitution as toilet paper, mm-hmm. you know, is the water we swim in right now. But <laughs> uh, it's, you know, shocking to him. Meanwhile, at the time, 
literal murderers are eligible for visas. Oh, my God. You can have a murder conviction and still get a visa, but anyone with a cannabis conviction of any kind, simple possession, which is what John Lennon was was mm-hmm. arrested for, totally ineligible. That's why he always had to get these uh, special waivers. Wow. So, I mean, I think this really illustrates how incredibly stupid these restrictions are. No person with common sense could look at that and say that, oh, a murderer is a better person to allow entry into the country than someone who has possessed or smoked cannabis at some point. It just illustrates how much of a tool of oppression cannabis prohibition was as opposed to any sort of common sense regulation. Not only is this a time when murderers can come in and weed people can't, but this is a time when the INS was actively protecting a number, a large number of known Nazi war criminals who were living (laughs) under fake names in the United States. Okay, so the list of accepted parties in the United States at this time. Murderers, Nazis, the list of prohibited people from the United States, people who have smoked weed at some point. Yeah, and got caught. And got caught. And on top of all of that, John Lennon always maintained that the original hashish bust back in merry old England had been a setup. Really? Yes. And this is how he explained it to his attorney. Hmm. Uh, I was completely innocent. Now, mind you, I do not deny having used hash. Hmm. You know, that would be a a bit of a whopper. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we'd been tipped off that there was going to be a police raid. The drug squad at Scotland Yard was out to get rock musicians, and I was high on their list. They'd already bagged Mick, Keith, and George. Oh, no shit. So they had gotten guys from the Rolling Stones. They'd gotten fellow Beatles of his uh, in trouble. So it was only a matter of time. You know, this guy was smoking weed. You've heard Sergeant Peppers. Smoke pot, smoke, smoke pot, pot. Everybody smoke pot. pot. Possibly <laughs> something Paul came up with. But we're <laughs> yeah. going to roll with it. Uh, continuing in John Lennon's own words. So now I have a record for life because this guy busted me. And that thing was a setup. The Daily Mail and the Daily Express, which are like tabloid newspapers. Oh, yeah, they're like the junkiest newspapers ever. Yes, then and now. They arrived before the cops. (laughs) (laughs) They're like Nightcrawler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, he says, a reporter friend had told us this was all coming because the police told the newspapers and this, this, you know, reporter leaked it to John Lennon to protect him. Mm Mm-hmm. So believe me, I'd cleaned the house out completely. Mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix had lived there before us, and I'm not stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, even if I find all my drugs. (laughs) You know there's some shit in drawers. Jimi Hendrix died, sadly, leaving behind countless bags of weed and cocaine Mm -hmm. in drawers. Oh, my gosh. We're still just uh, chipping away at at what was left behind. (laughs) And so John Lennon says, the only reason I even pleaded guilty is because I thought they'd deport Yoko since we weren't married, so I copped a plea. Oh, that's right. They never got the government involved in their relationship, and now that's, uh, that's a situation because it's harder to keep your girlfriend in the country than it is your wife, I suppose. Yeah, this is back in England at the time. They weren't married. And so he only ended up paying a small fine. So he's just like, I'm just going to buy my way out of this for a few hundred pounds. Mm. 
which is British money. <laughs> and he thinks it's over. And now like a like a zombie, it's it's risen back up to really fuck with him. Oh man. And and this goes back to in England. There was a, a decided non-friend of the podcast mm. called Detective Sergeant Norman Pilcher. This is the Scotland Yard detective. Pilcher. God, that's such <laughs> a fucking cop name. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this Pilcher, which we're just going to use as a pejorative. Yeah. <laughs> you fucking Pilcher. Yeah, bloody Pilcher. That could catch on. <laughs> I think so. So this fucking Pilcher, he orchestrated and executed... All those busts, Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, he's like a publicity hound of a cop who uh. is specializing in going after these musicians. And John Lennon was not alone in claiming that the drugs that he was arrested for were planted on him. Oh, oh my God. So these guys were all the victims of a really vindictive fucking cop who's been sprinkling crack on him. And is literally trying to make a name for him. So his come up is that, you know, these busts all get huge publicity, partially because right. they're so famous and partially because he literally has the newspapers with him. Oh, my God. What a fuckhead. This is like Cops Before Cops. Cops, the TV show. Yeah, seriously. Fucking Pilcher. Fucking Pilcher. But uh, you can get a little vengeance on Mr. Pilcher. Nice. Because all these claims that he was planting drugs on people got a lot more credible in 1972 hmm. when he was booted off the British drug squad and arrested for his role in an international drug smuggling ring. No way. That's where he was getting the drugs he was planting on <laughs> rock stars. God damn, what a fucking Pilcher this guy is. But... I'm so glad he got his comeuppance. Holy shit. Yeah. Did he rot in jail for a while? He pilched away in prison for a number of years. I don't know what became of him, but, you know, he went to jail for a long time and never was a cop again. Good. Yeah. So we got Nazis. We got rogue fucking cops. That's all fine. Yeah. John Lennon wanted to smoke hash a couple times and write beautiful music that the world loves. Deport him. Deport him. And so, and John Lennon actually also points out to this lawyer, hey, by the way, what I was arrested for was hashish, not marijuana. Mm. Now, this was potentially important distinction because the statue that actually affected John Lennon's immigration status mm -hmm. specified that people are excludable from the United States Quote, if they've ever been convicted of a crime related to narcotic drugs or marijuana. Oh, but not necessarily hashish. Not necessarily hashish. Huh. So sensing an opening to make a defense, Leon Wilds, this uh, immigration attorney, decides to seek out an expert witness on cannabis sativa. Ah, was it one of us? It was one of us. <laughs> it was somebody that we've actually talked about pretty extensively in an episode of this podcast. Huh. Was it Lester Grinspoon? It was Lester fucking no Grinspoon. Way. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. I'm so glad uh, he's here to clear the air. Yeah. A big, big hero to cannabis people everywhere. You can learn more about him in our episode from season one. About Carl Sagan. Yeah, they were best buds. He was a Harvard Medical School professor. He initially wanted to convince his best friend, Carl Sagan, not to smoke weed. Mm -hmm. But he ended up researching all about weed, realizing he was wrong. 
admitting he was wrong. Yeah, and then eventually using cannabis to help his ailing son. Yeah, a really, really beautiful and moving story. Yeah. All in season one, the Carl Sagan episode, and he publishes a book called Marijuana Reconsidered that really became the foundation for the modern legalization movement. Mm -hmm. And when we come back after our break, we're going to smoke a little weed, get paid for it. But when we come back, Lester fucking Grinspoon to the rescue. Yeah. We'll be right back. Smoke weedia. And we are back. When we last left off, John Lennon was in all sorts of trouble, but none other than Lester Grinspoon is about to swoop in and save the day. Yeah, absolutely. So as we talked about a little before the break, a Harvard Medical School professor wrote a book called Marijuana Reconsidered, but also at the time, as you mentioned, his son Danny was going through cancer treatments and he was supplying his son with cannabis to help him and ultimately, you know, became a leading advocate for cannabis medicine because Mm. in part of this experience. Yeah. Now, what's really beautiful and tying this all together is his son was a huge Beatles fan. And literally in the middle of this battle with cancer... His father, Dr. Grinspoon, Mm -hmm. is given an opportunity to step in and help John Lennon, and he uh, gets to meet him. They get all kinds of autographed Beatles memorabilia, and it is a huge thing in his life. That is so beautiful. Now, of course, we heard the story of Lester Grinspoon's son in our Carl Sagan episode, and it's very, very tragic. There was, of course, some solace in his life because his father actually is the one who facilitated him getting medical cannabis while he was sick. And here's this added layer to it. That is so incredible. How great for that kid. Yeah. And so Lester, I'm going to call him Lester. He is a literal friend of mine. He Mm -hmm. was pretty much one of my main weed mentors, uh, particularly in my time at High Times, writing a lot about medical cannabis. Somebody who is a really good friend to me, but also somebody who is willing anytime I had a question about cannabis for an article would get right on the phone with me. So big, huge friend of this podcast and a friend of myself and also the very first witness called at the immigration trial of John Lennon. Wow. Oh, my God. Okay, so what happens? He fucking runs circles around these prosecutors who don't know anything about cannabis. In fucking credible. And, I mean, this is a thing about the people prosecuting these crimes very often is they don't know what the fuck they were talking about because if they did, they would know that cannabis is essentially harmless and that anybody carrying it around or smoking it is essentially harmless as well. And they would also know that hashish is just concentrated cannabis. Right. But Lester gets up there and this lawyer, you know, they know what they're doing. They're doing a little dance, says, are marijuana and hashish the same thing? And and Lester says, no. (laughs) Ah, yeah. So, of course, for any novices out there, cannabis is this plant, right, that we are pretty obsessed with on this show. (laughs) Wow, we're going very, (laughs) very basic. Basic, yeah. (laughs) And hashish is cannabis concentrate. It's the resin from the cannabis plant. So hashish 
plus cannabis plant fibers equals cannabis. But of course, these stupid fucking pigs don't know that. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is this doesn't make the case go away, but it gives them a crucial delay Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden everything's in flux. The judge says, you guys don't even know what you're fucking talking about. Come back in a few weeks and we're going to rehear this. And that gave them the opportunity to mount a real defense. Wow. So it just bought them some time, essentially. Bought them some crucial time because this clock was ticking on deportation and they were serious. Yeah. They were going to drag John and Yoko out of their home and kick them forcibly out of the country. But this trial, this legal ordeal for John and Yoko lasts another Four years. Oh my God. Of motions and letters and hearings and testimony. And they're creating more and more delay tactics just to try to ultimately win this case and keep them in the country in the meantime while they're still looking for her daughter. So they're still in the United States at this point, but there's no telling when they're going to be shipped off. They might lose. Nobody knows what's happening. And this whole time, there's still the tragedy of Yoko's daughter. Yeah, and on top of all of this, throughout this four-year period of trials and motions and everything else, John, Yoko, and even their lawyer, this very straight-laced dude, Mm -hmm. all become convinced that they were being closely monitored by the authorities. Yeah, and you know what? Of course they were. Like, look, we're talking about this whole thing started because the authorities were using a kind of flimsy reason to kick somebody out of the country who they didn't like, right? Do you think that those same forces are going to be scrupulous when it comes to the actual legal process that these people are going through? No, of course not. They're going to watch their every step. They're going to spy on them. They're going to try to find other reasons to kick them out because their first one's not working. You know what I'm saying? As well as they wanted it to. Thank you very much, Lester Grinspoon. Yeah, and you know... We're a history show. We can't get into every aspect of everything. But if you have any doubts about how the FBI operated under J. Edgar Hoover and how the federal government operated under Richard Nixon, learn your history. It's all laid bare. And and this is how John Lennon explained what was going on. So he went on the Dick Cavett show. He is a legend and he had one of those kind of, these are the talk shows of the 70s where, you know, I don't advocate tobacco, but, you know, you'd smoke a cigarette and talk to Gore Vidal for 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also that famous interview of John Lennon that might have been on Ed Sullivan. I'm not sure if it was on Dick Cavett, but it was the one that was co-opted by Forrest Gump. In the land of China, people hardly got nothing at all. No possessions? And in China, they never go to church. No religion, too? Ah. Hard to imagine. Well, it's easy if you try, Dick. So he, in the middle of this trial, he goes on this talk show, and and John Lennon says, we know we're being wiretapped. Mm -hmm. I'm so paranoid from them tapping the phone and following me, but how can I prove it? I think they want me to know I'm being followed and I'm being monitored on the phone 
to make me more paranoid. They're after us because we we talk about peace, you know. I mean, because we we want we we want peace, you know. We've said the same thing for two years, different way, one way or another, and we believe in it. Yeah, totally. They're just trying to get into his head. They want to create that paranoia. They want to make you scared so that you'll vul- you're vulnerable and then you'll act. So John Lennon responds to all of this. You know, now they're trying to kick him out of the country. Yoko might never see her daughter again. He knows his phones are being tapped. He knows that he sees people following him all throughout New York City whenever he leaves the apartment. And he responds by filing a lawsuit against the U.S. Attorney General and a host of other public officials claiming that he's being illegally wiretapped and put under surveillance. And, you know, he very consciously talked with his lawyer at this time of like, I have to push back against this because so many other people think about the typical person who Mm -hmm. is trying to fight the immigration system Mm -hmm. then or now. You know, you're not going to have that kind of resources to literally sue the attorney general of the United States or that kind of public platform. Mm-hmm. to bring it out and 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 make people understand what's really going on with the government. Yeah. So he's fighting the INS. He's fighting the Nixon White House. He's fighting the Department of Justice. And he is still continuing to speak out against the Vietnam War and still continuing to try to rally young people to vote this president out of office. And then Watergate happened. Holy <laughs> shit. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. Oh, my God. All right. So Nixon suddenly has his hands full of his own shit. Yeah. And so when Watergate happens, of course, it takes a long time for all of this to play out between the break in and when he ultimately resigns. But this does give a lot of credibility to John Lennon's claims, uh, you know, that he's being followed, that he's being illegally monitored, that the White House is running a completely illegal campaign against him because of his political views. Mm -hmm. Um, He seems a lot less paranoid. And eventually, his lawyer, through freedom of information requests, which were new at the time, he would gain access to Lots and lots of files and government memos that backs all of this up. And they even discovered that the government was planning to set John and Yoko up for arrest for uh, this same charge, uh, crossing a state line to incite a riot if they had ever gone through with one of these concerts to encourage people to vote. No way. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so, you know, John and Yoko basically fight back against this fascistic government oppression with a combination of a really dogged legal defense and can't, you know, say enough. And 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 he was conscious of this. It's only because he had the resources to do this yeah. that he was able to really fight back. But they also throw in a dash of uh, conceptual art and freaking out the squares. Right. Uh, so as their lawyer is tirelessly filing motions and deposing witnesses and going over memos, John Lennon hops up in the middle of one of these hearings and says, actually, Yoko and I are now citizens of a completely new entity. And he, he says, We announced the birth of a conceptual country, Newtopia. Citizenship of the country can be obtained by declaration of your awareness of Newtopia. 
Newtopia has no land, no boundaries, no passports, only people. Wow. You can't really fuck with that. You know what I mean? Like, you can't really uh, get at a country that has no borders and no land and, you know, exists in people's minds. And that's a really beautiful, subversive concept that John Lennon has introduced here because it really speaks to something literal with something figurative, you know? Yeah, I am, for the record, uh, right now going to declare my awareness of Newtopia. Oh, yeah, I declare my awareness of Newtopia as well. <laughs> uh, so John and Yoko then declared themselves the ambassadors of Newtopia and said that granted them diplomatic immunity from being deported. Whoa, <laughs> brilliant. Holy shit. So so this is the legal defense that they carved out some time to work on, huh? This is, I think, something they came up with separate from their lawyer. <laughs> Pretty fucking clever. But he was like, go for it. You know, it did not ultimately create precedent in the court system. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was a beautiful moment. And I think in many ways they were exposing absurdity through absurdity. Yeah. And that's, you know, can often be not just an effective countermeasure, but but the most effective in some ways. So now more seriously, and, and this is really where this story becomes huge, is as the years wind on in this in this case and they're filing more and more motions and exposing more and more of what's going on internally in the INS, mm-hmm. this case would become a groundbreaking force in the field of immigration law. Because as they released all of these files on John and Yoko, what they exposed on the one hand were these massive injustices Mm -hmm. in how the INS dealt with immigrants and immigration. But they also pulled back the curtain on this on this process by which people could basically apply for deferred action on their deportation cases. So this was something that existed within immigration law, but the INS did everything they could to keep people from understanding that it even exists. And this is how you could basically claim things like, hey, if you deport me, I'll be separated from my child. Right. Holy shit. So this is stuff that actually is relevant today as well. Very relevant. Countless people would benefit over the next 30 years by pursuing this deferred action, including John and Yoko themselves, who ultimately that's the ground on which they won this case right like days after Yoko Ono gave birth to their first child together. Sean Lennon. Sean Lennon. Yeah, who's a musician out there today. Yes. And so, but it helped not just them, but many other people. But 40 years later, after this case, Mm-hmm. The precedent they set, which became known in all seriousness as the Lenin Doctrine. Wow. You could talk to any immigration lawyer about this and they will know exactly what you're talking about. Whoa. That Lenin Doctrine would form the basis of President Obama's 2012 executive order to establish deferred action for childhood arrivals. This morning, Secretary Napolitano announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy, uh, to make it more fair, more efficient, and more just, specifically for certain young people sometimes called dreamers. DACA, of course. And we're talking about the dreamers here, right? We are talking about the dreamers. Holy shit. So that's 
what the DA in DACA stands for, Deferred Action. That is absolutely incredible. I had no idea that John Lennon had such a massive impact on immigration policy here in the United States. My fucking mind is blown. And what an incredible legacy beyond his musical contributions to the world and his cultural contributions to the world and beyond his existence as a living being on this planet because, you Mm. know, obviously he passed away long before DACA was created. Um, But it has been the underpinning for protecting more than 700,000 undocumented people from deportation. And and we're largely talking about immigrants who were brought to the United States as children. Wow. That is absolutely crazy. So, you know, very often we say on this show that cannabis is there at every turn in history in some way. And it's pretty wild. You know, for everything that I saw about DACA in the news back when Obama was president and ever since, obviously because DACA is a real thorn in President Trump's side, right? Who knew that it all went back to an accusation that John Lennon should not be allowed in the country because he was caught with some hash at some point? That's fucking crazy. Yeah, all because of fucking Pilcher. All because of Pilcher. Fucking Pilcher. And I think the other thing, you know, that, that really struck me in thinking about this is... You know, fighting against injustice in big ways or in small ways. And I think we're all called upon to do what we can. Yeah. But it it often feels like a losing battle all the time. And Mm. it's often the authorities who seem to have the upper hand. And here is a situation where it took another 40 years for the fruits of what John Lennon and Yoko Ono did to ripen into something that when you're talking about 700,000 people mm-hmm. and we're not talking about a small thing, we're talking about the difference between staying where you've almost lived your entire life or being deported to a place you've really never even known. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, victory doesn't always come in immediate or obvious ways, uh, but this inspires me to keep pushing. And and now the, you know, where we kind of have to leave it is that the Supreme Court of the United States is currently, as we record this podcast and possibly before we release it, deciding on a challenge to DACA, to these dreamers, to the Lenin doctrine as it's applied by the Trump administration, which is seeking to dismantle the program and kick all of these dreamers out of the country. And very sadly, because the court is conservatively leaning right now, they'll probably succeed in doing that. It is a degeneration of something that was so progressive and just common sense. You know what I mean? Like when we look at all the ridiculous bullshit that was caught up in this, that was exposed by John Lennon, by this entire process. I mean, it was a good thing that we changed the way that immigration was conducted here in the United States. And sadly, like in so many other ways, we're probably going to take a few steps backwards. Yet to be determined, but certainly a very strong possibility. And, you know, for John Lennon's part in the story, I think we can leave it with with his words and his song. Mm -hmm. You know, you may say I'm a dreamer. But I'm not the only one. No, we're going to have to stick together, people, because... 
you know, this is what we're facing. People who want to put children in cages and, and, and separate families and, you know, um, we're going to have to find a way through it together and, and, and all dream that dream. Yeah, me too, Bean. I'll dream it with you as well. And for everybody out there listening, always question authority, always stand up, never be afraid, because if we band together and stick to our ideals, we can topple all of the monsters in our way. And it's happened before, and we can do it again. Don't stop believing in ourselves, in yourself. Fuck the man. Thank you guys for listening. Long live Natopia. Long live Natopia. Thank you, John Lennon. Thank you, John Lennon. And that is a wrap for season three of Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for your support. We really appreciate every single one of you. Please be sure to follow us on social media. That's at G-M-I-W-H podcast for updates on more to come. Thanks. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're produced by Cody Hoffmachel with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Carson McCain. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. We're recorded at Gold Digger Studio by Gabe Wilhelm. Shout out to our patrons on Patreon. Thanks so much. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at GMIWH Podcast on all platforms. Check out our show notes for links to our sponsors. You can support us by supporting them. Thanks for listening. that's the show folks thanks so much for listening and if you stuck around this long please consider supporting us on patreon you could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and that would really help us as we research write edit and publish a new episode every weedness day great moments in weed history is written produced and performed by me david beanstock aka bean Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.